It's prospect time, and we'll be talking prospects with BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, January the 24th. It's show number three of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our regular weekly Talk with Todd featuring Todd Zola discussing some of his choices at the recent FSTA Experts Draft about managing the wheel position in a snake draft and how using on-base percentage in expert leagues might affect regular leagues. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Here's some news. The Yankees are spending money again. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, it's true. After announcing a policy and kind of sticking with it of staying firmly under the $190 million luxury tax threshold, the Yankees are spending again. They've already signed Brian McCann, Carlos Beltran, and Jacoby Ellsbury. And this past week, they grabbed up Japanese pitcher Masahiro Tanaka for seven years and 155 million smackaroos. In all, the Yankees' payroll is now at 194 million, above the luxury tax threshold. We'll talk about Tanaka, the Yankees, and more on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Now the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. But leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Nick, I suppose the big news uh, this week in the National League was that Matt Garza finally found a place to pitch. He's going to be going to the Milwaukee Brewers. There's some question about the official nature of that announcement. It's been all over the news. The team and the player have not officially come out and said this is so, at least as far as I've heard, but it looks like it's a done deal four years. So a couple of questions. How does Matt Garza look pitching in Milwaukee, and what does it mean for the rest of that Milwaukee situation? Well, you know, you know Matt Garza looks, certainly looks good pitching anywhere. I mean, if you look back over Matt Garza's career record, Here's a guy who's had an ERA below four since 2007, every single year, um, and and has held up. Uh, he's been he's had some injury. You know, this is not a guy who's going to pitch 200 innings. He has injury problems. He's, in fact, he's not thrown 200 innings at any time in his major league. Well, let's see, 2009, 2010, almost made it 2011. But you know, the, he, he's not a 200 inning pitcher anymore. I don't think, but but a very consistent ERA below four kind of pitcher uh, has pitched well in the National League. Uh, I think I think he's a good get for Milwaukee. He should immediately step in as their number one starter uh, and pretty, probably do pretty well. Now the question is, is the Milwaukee lineup going to produce enough wins for him to be a really effective uh, fantasy pitcher? And I think that's something we have to uh, to kind of perhaps be careful with. I don't know that the wins will be there because of the lineup that he's dealing with. 
Yeah, also the bullpen situation is a little shaky as well. What I like about Matt Garza, Nick, is that his expected ERA has been well under four for the last three consecutive years, 337 in 2011, then 354, 379. It's rising slowly, but it's still well under four. He's, he's good for it is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, here's a guy who should be a good fantasy pitcher. I think wins, you know, wins are always a difficult category, and in Milwaukee they may come harder than they would somewhere else. But Matt Garza is certainly a uh, – a worthy pickup uh, from a fantasy perspective. One other thing to note and maybe worry about a little bit is that at the same time as his uh, expected ERA has been slowly creeping up, his dominance rate, his strikeouts per nine, has been slowly creeping down, which is a, a sign of some problems perhaps. A 9.0 in 2011 down to 7.9 last year. Are you concerned about what seems like an incremental decline in Dom? Yeah, well, you know, you always have to think about that, especially with a pitcher who has some kind of an injury history. So that's that's sort of a, a worrisome kind of thing. I don't think we've seen anything yet that would um, suggest that that these guys are going to fall apart. But at the same time, yeah, that's a concern, and it means you don't throw uh, all your dollars at him on draft day. We should also point out that while his strikeout rate has been falling, his walk rate has been falling too, and as a result, his command ratio, which is a very good indicator of overall skill, has been rising. His He walked 2.9 guys in 2011 per nine innings. That's all the way down to 2.4. And I view that as a positive sign, Nick, in that usually when a guy starts having arm problems and elbow problems in particular, one of the key indicators is that his walk rate starts to go up because he loses a little bit of control. If anything, it looks like Garza has been improving his control. Maybe he's just pitching smarter as he gets older and wants to get ground outs and easy outs and not worry so much about strikeouts. Yeah, maybe indeed. I mean, you know, as a guy as a guy ages and learns more, that uh, certainly pitching smarter is a great thing to do. And, and you're right, that may be what's happening. Jeff Samarja made uh, Steve Nickran's hidden skills column. What is Stephen saying about Jeff Samarja, and what do you think? Well, you know, the interesting thing to look at, at what happened with Jeff Samarja last year was a, a great first half, 3.34 ERA in the first half, and then kind of fell apart in the second half with a 5.47 ERA. Uh, and it, but if you look at that, there was a rise in hit rate in the second half. There was a, um, uh, a rise in home run per nine in the second half, a rise in home run per fly. So he was giving up a few more homers, getting a few more hits to fall. Uh, but actually pitched pretty well in the second half. Skills were not were not nearly as different. And, and, and Stephen has something very interesting to point out about Jeff Samarja. He says that um, Jeff Samarja has a situation where his problem is he had trouble with runners in scoring position. Um, a really, really great situation until somebody got on base. And then when runners get in scoring position, the control went up to 5.3, and those walks then turned into earned runs. Um, and with a home run per nine of 1.2 with runners in scoring position, they turn into more in runs. So if he could pitch better when runners are in scoring position, if he could concentrate more, maybe calm down a little bit, uh, and, and throw the same way with runners in scoring position that he does when there's nobody on base, then uh, certainly has a great chance to break out this season. Yeah, anytime I see a split like that, though, Nick, uh, I'll just put in this level of disagreement. It's convenient for us as analysts to say it's it's a makeup issue. You know, he, he he panics out there or he loses his composure or whatever. But I've talked to other guys over the years, and I'm sure you're familiar with this argument as well, and that is sometimes there's a difference between a guy pitching from the stretch and a guy pitching from the full windup, and a lot of pitchers really struggle pitching from the stretch, and maybe there's a mechanical issue as well that Samarja needs to address. It, it, may, it may be. I mean, I'm certainly that. I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. But given the skill level, you would think he certainly has the uh, 
has the wherewithal to address it. Right. He may need uh, the, the right kind of coaching to address that sort of thing. And in that in that situation, I would feel far better were he in Atlanta or in St. Louis than in, than in Chicago. Right. Uh, feel better about his being able to get the right kind of coaching to take that step up. Uh, but certainly that uh, once once he finds the way to deal with pitching uh, in, in with runners on base, uh, certainly good things could happen. Yeah, what I'd like to look at, and I may just do that after the show is done, Nick, is I might just go and look and see how he pitches with runners at first only because then he's still pitching from the stretch, but they're not in scoring position and see if there's a further change or, or a downgrade in his performance when guys are on second or second and third or what have you uh, versus first base and not so much look at uh, bases empty situations. It's an interesting situation. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Moving ahead, uh, Stephen also mentioned Lance Lynn, Nick, uh, St. Louis starting pitcher, who had a pretty good year last year. Lance Lynn did had a very good year last year, but but again, one of those guys who seemingly faded in the second half. Three point five two ERA in the first half, four point four one ERA in the second half. And the important thing to look at with Lance Lynn is if you look at those skills, the skills were actually better in the second half. He's another guy who got victimized by a high hit rate, thirty five percent in the second half. A uh, and uh, again a uh, a. A bit of a home run per fly problem, which uh, in the second half, maybe that was just an adjustment. I mean, home run per fly in the first half was only 5%, rose to 10% in the second half. That's about what we'd expect. So maybe the real Lance Lynn is somewhere between the first half and the second half. But what Stephen points out that's very, very interesting here is that here's a guy who has a huge lefty-righty split uh, against right-handers in uh, last season. 9.8 dom, 2.1 control, 47% ground ball rate, 144 BPV. But a left-hander in the box against him, 7.6 dom, 5.2 control, 39% ground ball rate, 12 BPV. So if he could improve even just a little bit against left-handers and find some way of, uh, of uh, not getting them on, letting them on base as well, of getting the ball over the plate, uh, whatever, then he's got a real good chance to post an ERA below 3.5. Yeah, that second half ERA and the general decline in the second half could really make Lance Lynn a guy to target at your draft or auction because there's going to be a lot of people who look at that second half and think, I'm just worried that he's going to carry on that way in in the first half of this year and this this whole year. I like uh, Lance Lynn a lot. And finally, uh, one of the big topics of conversation at the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, Nick, has been the likelihood that Billy Hamilton is going to A, play a lot, and B, deliver the stolen bases we all expect. There was, in fact, a thread on the subscriber forums that set the over-under on Billy Hamilton's stolen bases this year at 100. And guys were weighing in on whether they thought that Billy Hamilton could steal 100 bases. So uh, Billy Hamilton's all the rage. Uh, Nick, what say you? Well, you know, Billy, Billy Hamilton's an interesting topic of conversation, and the, the problems we have with Billy Hamilton as a as a full time player are questions about his batting average, questions about his walk rate, uh, and therefore questions about his on base percentage. I mean, if this guy is an on base percentage of under 300, can you play him every day? He also has defensive questions in center field. Can you can he really cut it out there defensively? But the thing to think about with a guy like Billy Hamilton, look at what he did in September of last year in that short call up. Here's a guy with 19 at-bats, but 13 stolen bases and 9 runs scored, most of that coming as a pinch runner. So if you were a manager and you needed a run in the ninth inning of a ball game, would you start Billy Hamilton and, and take a chance that he's not going to come to bat in the ninth inning? Or would you leave him on the bench where you can uh, 
make somebody else get on base and then put Billy Hamilton out there to come around and score for you. It is interesting, and in a lot of ways, I think, Nick, he might be a more valuable fantasy asset coming off the bench than playing regularly, especially if he's going to hit you know, 240 or something like that in 600 at-bats playing full-time. The the question about any guy like him is you can't steal first base, and his low on-base percentage is going to put a natural cap on his ability to get you all those steals. But thinking about it as a pinch runner only, his on-base percentage is 1,000. He never comes in except when he's going to start the game at first base. And so, in a way, he can steal first base if that's how they choose to play him. Then the question becomes, do they do that often enough that he can generate some generate some stolen bases for you and, and uh, you know get the 100 or 105 or whatever that you're hoping for? And, and the, other, the other problem I see here, Nick, is uh, his defensive abilities. You mentioned that they might not be able to find a place for him to play right away. There's been talk about trading Brandon Phillips and moving him to second, moving Hamilton to second, that is, or letting Hamilton play center field, but he's not really a center fielder. There's a lot of issues here with Billy Hamilton, and unless they get settled before drafts start happening, it's going to be a very interesting question how fantasy owners deal with this whole situation. It will indeed. And, you know, and the problem with the scenario that we talked about, about using the guy as a pinch runner, is that I, I, I fear that too often the major league mindset is not to, is not to do that. You know, we think about guys that, that uh, here's a good prospect, he ought to be starting, or he ought to be back in the minors playing every day. I'm not sure that's the case with Billy Hamilton. Yeah, it reminds me. I, I think he's a guy that you could you could manage off your bench very, very well. Yeah, he reminds me. Remember Herb Washington back in the day? The Oakland A's had this, brought this guy in with great speed to be a pinch runner. His problem was he didn't know how to run the bases. Billy Hamilton at least has proved if he knows how to do nothing else, he does know how to steal a base. He does indeed. And look at that September line. 19 at-bats, 13 stolen bases, 9 runs scored. Uh, that's a line to look at if you're thinking about Billy Hamilton at the draft table and you hope that the... Uh, if you draft him, you hope the powers that be will uh, continue to look at that sort of thing if his B.A. collapses and his on-base percentage collapses. Yeah, if he maintains that rate of 13 stolen bases for every 19 at-bats, if you even give him 150 at-bat season plus pinch running, he's good for 105 bases. Might be worth swallowing a low batting average. Absolutely. He could win the stolen base category for you, right? Oh, yeah. The, it's like the old Vince Coleman days or... or uh, Ricky Henderson without the power, of course, but uh, a single guy can win you that category just like a closer or two can win you that one if you if you strike the right couple. Very definitely. All right, Nick, thanks very much for joining us again this week. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the National League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and writer Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? I'm doing fine up here in uh, Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. It's very, very cold in the minus 20s. Not as cold as it is in other parts of Canada, of course, and some parts of the uh, upper Midwest in the U.S. are also very cold as well. So glad to be with everybody who's uh, trying to stay warm and uh, listen to some Baseball HQ Radio podcasting, and I'm always glad to have Jock Thompson be part of that. Jock, the big news this week... uh, Masahiro Tanaka of Japan signs with the Yankees and gets a huge deal. He's going to make more money than you, Darvish. Seven years, 155 plus the posting fee, and he's never thrown a pitch in the major leagues. What do you think? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot of money, PD, and, and, and the Yankees seem like a nice place to land, even if they are a, a tick behind Boston and Tampa in the AL East. And even if they don't have Mariano in the offense they've had a few, a few years back, it should kick him up in a, in a few drafts. I think we're all guessing as to how quickly Tanaka is going to adjust to major league hitters in the longer season. Uh, in fact, Baseball HQ has him currently projected at 160 innings, although with a very good ERA in the low threes, 
honestly, I've I've never seen him pitch. Uh, have 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 read that others suggest his fat ball, his fastball occasionally flattens out, which makes me wonder how he how he might handle the short porch in Yankee Stadium. Most observers think he's going to be fine. Um, but here's an interesting question: What happens if CC Sabathia can't reverse his uh, 2013 downturn? and Hiroki Kuroda begins showing his age. And what happens if the Yankee infield is as bad as it looks defensively? I think Tanaka is going to be good. The real question is how good. And I'll give you what I think my answer is going to be is he's going to be seriously overdrafted in a lot of drafts because of being with the Yankees and so forth. I, I think the Yankees are not nearly as strong as a lot of people think. You mentioned the defensive liabilities they have all over that infield and uh, and the short porch. I don't know that... I think Tanaka is going to get drafted two, three rounds higher than I would draft him, and for maybe five or six dollars more, I'll I'll nominate him because I don't want him. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I I think he he could be overrated, and a lot might have to do with the team. I don't think the Yankees are going to give their pitchers nearly as much support as they've given them in previous years. Right. I, I don't have that many worries about the bullpen, frankly. I, I, I think bullpen strength is a important thing, as we're going to talk about. But I think Robertson could probably handle the closing. You know, it's not that, despite all the hullabaloo that's made out of it, it's not that huge of a thing in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think. I just, when I look at Tanaka, I think people look at him and say, he's got, I want to get the next U Darvish, because I wish I'd grabbed U Darvish two years ago. And this guy is just not you, Darvish. You know the fastball is not there, the strikeout capability is not there, and you know he's he's smaller. All these kind of things that go on. And and Darvish has two years in the big leagues. Yeah, I think I think you and I are pretty much in sync on this one. Jock, let's stay in the American League East. Boston signed Grady Sizemore. This is something of a surprise. Seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar major league contract. He's thirty one years old. I know he's uh, he was a good player at one time, but he's had no end of knee injuries and knee problems. What do you make of all this, especially how does it affect Jackie Bradley? Well, it's, it's kind of an interesting sign. It's really a low-risk sign because from what's been reported, the base is $700 million. There's There's another $6 million in incentives. But you're right. Uh, uh, Gra- Sizemore hasn't played since 2011. Um, he had all kinds of problems. But when he was healthy, he, he, he took a walk and he hit with power. And guys who can take a walk are, are something that Boston really likes to pick up. As we saw last year, they love to mix and match with these guys. They like to wear down pitchers. Um, it's, it's pretty impossible to give Sizemore a, a projection right now. Um, I, I, I think Boston is hoping they can get 200, 250 at-bats from him off the bench. Um, but again, they must have seen something in his medicals to, to do this signing, and uh, I don't think it's as bad as most people think it is. One of the problems that I have is is uh, with uh, with Boston this year is I'm not sure how quickly Jackie Bradley's going to produce. I didn't see a lot in his uh, his BPIs and his numbers last year that that uh, suggests we give him a lot of confidence. Now he's a left-handed hitter like Sizemore is, and they also have Shane Victorino who can who can play uh, center field well uh, in a pinch, and he he's a switch hitter. So I, I think Boston is acquiring um, um, si- uh, Sizemore as, as sort of a hedge or a caddy or a mentor for Bradley. And uh, I don't, like I said, I don't think the move is that bad. I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to say I don't think it matters that much. I mean, for the time being, depending on what we see in spring training, we're going to go to the draft table, and not a lot of people, nobody in a mixed league is going to look at Grady Sizemore, I don't think, except maybe a flyer in the reserve round or something like that. But in a, and, and in a single-league league, there might be more rationale to take him. But really, this is not 
that hugely significant in the scheme of things. Yeah, and he's going to be one of those guys that he's going to be on the free agent list in most leagues, and, and until he hits a few home runs, if he hits a few home runs. But it's 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 like we've talked about before. If Grady Sizemore goes down with a knee injury in late March, it's not going to surprise either of us. <laughs> Man, that's for sure. Uh, a lot of people have had Grady Sizemore in fantasy leagues and uh, wish they hadn't because of those knee and such persistent knee injuries as well with that microfracture surgery and all of that sort of stuff. It just doesn't argue well for a, a lot of at-bats or production in fantasy terms. Uh, how about Tampa Bay, Jock? They were really busy this past week. They picked up uh, Logan Forsythe and Brad Boxberger, a reliever. Uh, Forsythe's kind of a second-base utility infielder for Alex Torres going back to San Diego, and they signed Grant Balfour, which I think is more interesting. He was Oakland's closer the past two seasons, and uh, they've already announced he's going to be the closer in Tampa Bay this season. So uh, what do you make of all of what Tampa Bay's been doing? Well, these are interesting moves. Um, You know, Forsythe is actually a little better than I think a lot of people realize. He was reportedly a key to this deal. Um, last year he had a he had a lost year. He tried to play year through year long plantar fasciitis, and he paid the price with that two fourteen batting average. But the year before he actually earned eight dollars. Uh, his his uh, expected power index has always flashed signs of slightly above a- average power. Um, he's capable of hitting two sixty two seventy with a handful of home runs and stolen bases. But he's really been acquired for versatility. He doesn't have a position. He's likely going to be another Joe Madden Swiss Army knife, if you will at three infield positions in the outfield, kind of like Sean Rodriguez. So Tampa Bay is building that versatility into their into their system. Um, I like the Boxberger signing. He's interesting. Uh, in spite of his control issues, he's whiffed more than a batter an inning over his 50 uh, major league innings pitched. And he's kept his ERA down below three, which suggests he's unhittable. Tampa was also a little bit uh, left-handed heavy in the pen. Yeah, they were. Uh, they they thought that Torres was uh, was expendable. Um, they're really trying to build a mix and match pen, and 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 this is one reason the Balfour acquisition is is really interesting. Uh, Tampa is starting to look a little like the East Coast version of the A's. Um, they got Balfour pretty cheaply. I think uh, twelve million two years, and like you said, he's going to close. But there are reasons to be cautious with him. Um, obviously, his his Baltimore physical, which I think the Orioles were concerned about the knee, not his arm. But he's had a rising rock walk rate. His velocity's declining. His ERA was three point. His expected ERA, I should say, was three three point five zero in the last three years. And it points to an interesting fact. He loved pitching in Oakland. He's not a ground ball pitcher. He keeps a lot of balls in the air. Balfour has a career ERA in Oakland of one point five five and a WHIP of zero point nine two. Now, now Tampa Bay isn't uh, isn't particularly a, a, a pitcher's park. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does over there. Yeah, especially for a fly ball pitcher, it's a little more homer friendly than Oakland. Oakland's a, a monstrously big uh, outfield. So I'm interested, as you are, Jock, in this whole idea that uh, a smart team like Oakland sees the bullpen as a way to maybe get a little more punch out of their young starting rotation. The uh, Tampa Bay rotation, likewise, quite young, and maybe they're looking at shortening down the starts and getting more mileage out of their bullpen as a way to get efficiency out of their money because these relievers are a little cheaper. And I wonder, do you think that the same thing can be done in uh, fantasy terms, especially in 5 by 5 where strikeouts matter? Well, yeah, context is everything, obviously. For for example, um, 
Alex Torres, I'll go to the National League for a minute now that he's in, in San Diego. If you're in a strikeout league, he's going to get his strikeouts. But if you're in a strikeout minus walk league, you really got to hedge your bets a little bit uh, in, in picking him up. Um, obviously, one of the main reasons to pick up relief pitchers that aren't closers is to hedge your bets against picking up risky starting pitchers and keep your ERA and your, and your whip low. So that, that's always an issue. But uh, I, I think you're on to something. I think Oakland and Tampa Bay are attempting to take advantage of an undervalued area of the bullpen and try to preserve their pitching staffs for, for early on in the season and, and for the postseason. Um, let's face it, uh, um, by the time uh, both, both of these clubs expect to make the postseason, or at least hope they do, and if they can preserve their entire pitching staffs uh, by, by using their bullpen um, – um, that it, it could work out real well in uh, in October. You know, Jock, that's an excellent point because the Oakland A's trotted out six different starters last year who had 10 or more starts, and not one of them went over 200 innings. Uh, A.J. Griffin had exactly 200, and all the rest were under that mark. And as you say, when they're looking ahead to the playoffs, you don't want to go in there with a whole bunch of guys who've thrown 225 innings. If you can figure out a way to get to the playoffs by having a bunch of starters who threw 190 innings, you've got that much more mileage to go when you do get to the playoffs, less tired pitchers. Yeah, that seems to be the objective right now. It's going to be interesting to see how it works. And finally, uh, over in the American League Central, Jock, uh, Omar Infante cashed in a pretty good season last year with the Tigers. Now he signs a four-year deal with Kansas City to be their starting second baseman. This solves a real big problem for Kansas City. Uh, Dave Adler's facts and flukes write-up about Infante this past weekend at BaseballHQ.com, however, says he might not be so good in Kansas City. So what do you think? Well, I, I think you're right. I think um, I think Omar Infante is going to be the best thing to hit second base in Kansas City in a long time. But but I'm mostly in agreement with Dave on this. Um, one caveat here is that Infante has historically outhit his expected batting average, and actually had back-to-back 300 seasons in 2009 and 2010 prior to last year. He's able to do this mostly because of a 90% contact rate, pretty good speed, and a favorable hit rate. But working against him now is the fact that his walk rate is down to 4% over the past two seasons. He hasn't been nearly as selective as he once was. And he's not going to hit double-digit home runs again, probably in St. Louis, or I'm sorry, in uh, in uh, Kansas City. It's a it's a far more home run suppressing ballpark than Detroit was in Comerica, which was pretty neutral. The bottom line is that a that a 300 batting average from Infante is possible, but it's a high watermark. He, he's just as likely to hit 275 in the coming year, and and he, his years are are always going to be a product of hit rate swings. So. He's 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 got a high floor, um, and the the real question is, are you going to pay for that 300 ceiling? Yeah, and the answer is probably not if you're playing it smart. I mean, you usually want to get a guy where you're paying for 275, and then you're happy when he hits 300. You don't want to you don't want to go out on a limb and grab a guy thinking 300, and then be disappointed with 275. It's just the wrong way to go about it. That's exactly right. And uh, here's a guy who most of his value is tied up in his batting average. He doesn't steal a lot of bases. He can get a handful occasionally. He can surprise you. And he's had 10 and 12 home runs his last two years. But before that, he was always in single digits, which is where I think he ends up in Kansas City. One thing to keep in mind, however, Omar Infante is a pretty good defensive guy with the glove out at second, which could help Kansas City's pitching. They're, they are uh, get a lot of ground balls in there. And last year, second base was not a strength defensively for them. So maybe they turn a few more ground balls into outs and double plays. Maybe it'll help guys like James Shields. 
Yeah, that's a real good point. I, like I said, I think overall the Infante acquisition by Kansas City was a very good sign, and, and as you say, on both sides of the ball. Yeah, one of those situations where the player might be good for real baseball, not so much for fantasy baseball. It happens uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. Jock Thompson writes a whole bunch of different stuff for BaseballHQ.com and is our regular American League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here is the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the serious fantasy leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's Radio 5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to get $5 off the baseball forecaster for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler has an analytics column about strategizing in the FSTA Experts Draft. Troy Martell has a look at the 2014 score sheet player lists. And Stephen Nickrand's starting pitcher buyer's guide looks at 2014's hidden skill pitchers. Nick and I talked about that a little earlier. Time now for our regular Friday Talk with Todd. It's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola contributor to BaseballHQ.com, MastersBall.com, and ESPN.com. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick, and this is the first time in a while that I'm not in the basement. And that's only because the leagues haven't started. No, it's because I no longer live in a basement. I'm, I'm breaking the, uh, the, the, the nerd in the basement, the geek in the basement uh, stereotype, and I've got my own place now, so... Well, that is good. Uh, I should say that the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast World Headquarters are in a basement as well up here in Waterloo, Ontario, because my wife doesn't want the podcasting equipment out where people can see it. Todd, uh, part of the uh, FSTA uh, conference that you were at last week in Vegas, uh, the Fantasy Sports Trade Association, is a very important experts draft, the first really big uh, experts draft of the year. Uh, and I'd like to talk to you about some of the players you took uh, during the course of that draft, it's a straight snake draft, not an auction. And let's start with Alex Rios, all the way up in round two. And I guess you took some uh, jibes and heat for doing it. Yeah, the, uh, the the draft was broadcast on Sirius, and they've got all sorts of social media that goes on with it as well. And uh, and plus, I, I just got back from the ESPN ranking summit, and we ranked Rios pretty high. And there were some questions uh, as to why at that point. Um He's been a top 10 hitter the past two seasons. Uh, we may not believe it or realize it, uh, but the numbers are there. He, he has this every other year uh, reputation, and it's sort of been one bad half and one unlucky half to make it look make it look like that. He, Skills-wise, he's a lot more stable than outcomes-wise, and I think people are finally catching up to that. Uh, well, not everybody, but some people are finally catching up to that. Um, the route, as you, with this table, it, it went pretty chalk. There weren't a whole lot of 
uh, chances taken or, or, or players that fell. I had the, the first pick, and so this would have been the, 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 the wheel at the 2-3 point. I've been taking Rios in the third round uh, more often than not because that's the Albert Pujols and Jose Batista and Matt Kemp round, and if the table lets me take Rios in the third, I, I, I'm elated. Um, with the first pick in the third round, I mean, so technically it was a second-round pick. But I think he's worth that spot. I think we need to take a harder look at his numbers and realize he is that good. He is that durable. I can't tell you exactly how many home runs and how many steals he's going to get because it's been a little bit variable. He's kind of up and down like that. But I do know that the combined total is going to be pretty darn good by the end of the year. Your next uh, somewhat controversial or uh, discussable pick came in round eight where you uh, jumped up and took Jose Abreu, the Cuban guy who's going to be uh, playing in the cell in Chicago this year. That seems like a risky kind of pick at round eight. What was your thinking there? Uh, this, yeah, this is an interesting sort of, in, in most drafts, uh, when you get into that neighborhood, it's a very interesting sort of thought process because you've got, you've got a guy like Abreu, you usually have if you're looking for you know power first base at this point you know if you're not it doesn't matter <laughs> but uh, you got a guy like Abreu you usually have a guy like Rizzo Anthony Rizzo you usually have Mark Teixeira and you often have Matt Adams and and even Mike Napoli you know you've got and it's five very interesting you can make an argument for any of the five at this point and it's just sort of what you want you want to go upside you you know Adams or or or, or uh, you know, or Abreu, or do you want to, you know, play it a little bit safer? I mean, all of them are, are upside, even Rizzo. Uh, we decided, my part, I say we, because I was partnering with my, uh, Lar Michaels, our Masters Ball partner, another frequent guest on HQ Radio. Um, we thought we, you know, we like to play it a little bit safe early and, and take some shots throughout the draft, and we just thought this was an interesting opportunity to take one of those shots. Uh, the Cuban, uh, pedigree it, it translates fairly well um, not perfectly as far as the numbers aren't going to translate perfectly but they seem to have a, a less of an adjustment period some of the Cuban players that have come over as compared to some of the other uh, foreign foreign players that have come over so we're, we're pretty optimistic there great park I'm not worried about Paul Kernerko you know I think he's you know he's more of a backup I mean I think if, if, if Jose Obreu hits he's going to hit he's going to stay in the lineup um, so to us, it was, a, a you know, Matt Adams and we, we know about Matt Adams. Maybe, maybe Tavares comes up mid season and Craig plays first and who knows what Teixeira is going to do coming off the injury and that sort of thing. And Rizzo, eh, I'm, I don't think this is the year that he makes the jump. So we, we went with some upside and, and basically because of the fact that the Cubans seem to seem to be more ready for the ML for major, for major leagues and some other foreign players we thought it was a good chance to take i like the argument you make about upside too uh between the uh, among the guys you mentioned napoli and and matt adams you pretty much know what you're going to get at that point and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of upside there but jose abreu in a way not knowing quite what to expect could be an advantage there that uh, you know you kind of solid in on 20 home runs or so you never know. This guy could hit thirty-five just as uh, just as readily in that park, especially. So I think it's an interesting and justifiable pick. Then down in round twelve, you went with Drew Smiley. Yeah, I might I might like Drew Smiley more than I should, um, but I don't I don't or I might not or I may be onto a guy that I should be onto. Um, there's a you know our, our friends at Fangraphs have done some studies that. 
they call it the rule of 17s when you go from a reliever to a starter or vice versa your peripherals improve 17% if you go from starter to reliever you know more importantly in this case they they decline 17% if you go from reliever to starter and even if you apply that that rule of thumb to Smiley's peripherals and then you know work out the expected ERA and all that sort of stuff it's still pretty darn good uh, you know I I thought that this guy I thought, you know, they had him in the exact wrong role last year. I mean, he shouldn't have been a loogie. He should have either been, you know, starting or closing. Uh, his arm, you know, is one of those guys that you just you forget forget the, the opportunity of what he's doing. That's an arm that you want. So in a league where we're at the point where people take who they want, and I think that's a general, that's sort of happening more and more anyway, we wanted Smiley. We were willing to take the chance that he doesn't convert very well or, is limited with innings or anything else, so we felt that was the time, because we were at we're at the wheel, and it would have been another twenty something picks. We didn't know if he'd make it back to us, and he, I, we numbers wise, he was worthy of that spot anyway. If the num if my numbers are right, but um, I'm finding I'm I'm getting Drew Smiley on an awful lot of teams, which means I'm overly optimistic, or I could wait a little longer getting him before you know before getting him. Just for calibration's sake, Todd, do you remember who the next pitcher after Smiley was who was taken? That means the pitcher you could have had? The next pitcher, actually, I mean, the next pitcher wasn't until uh, several picks later, was C.J. Wilson, then John Lester, Doug Fister, Jeff Samarja, uh, Zach Wheeler. So, you know, there there are some decent pitchers. You know, Samarja, I like, you know, you know there, there's some pitchers that are, you know, I've got a track record of being pretty good. And finally, uh, Todd, I I saw that you drafted Cole Calhoun of the Angels way down in round 22, uh, a round from the uh, end. And if anything surprises me about this is that he's been getting a fair amount of buzz as a sleeper. Were you surprised he was still on the board when you got to that yeah, slot? Yeah, you know, you probably, we were probably, Lara and I were probably too happy, you know, for, for, our, for a 23rd pick, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, at that point, it's a 13-team league, so you have to sort of recalibrate if, if, if you're into the 15-team mode, because uh, a lot of people now are drafting 15-team leagues, you sort of have to recalibrate down or calibrate up just a tad for 12. Uh, but I was surprised that, that he was still available. And it was, you know, actually, if we had remembered about him, we may have even taken him. No, actually, no, that's not true. Uh, what we, were, we had him on our radar, but we were trying to figure out the, the order of our last three picks. Uh, to, to, to see if we can get them all, you start playing that game at the, at the very end, uh, and, and we actually read the room, feeling that he would be there for us. Uh, you know, if we waited another round or two, and that we we got lucky, we didn't wait to the very last round. But uh, and he, you get a starting outfielder, and he's going to start, and I don't think he's going to platoon in a fairly potent lineup. Um, you know, some people were drafting. I mean, Raja Davis had already been drafted. Um, Cameron Mabin, Peter Borges, George Springer, these guys had, had sort of been drafted. So we're, we're dealing with either, you know, part-timers or, or flyers. To get a full-timer at that point in the draft, I thought that was pretty cool. I was curious, uh, you mentioned that you were on the wheel, you had the first pick overall, which means you cool your heels for a while after that, and then every so often you're taking two picks. And that's a interesting roster management issue for for snake draft formats i noticed for instance that at the 10 11 turn you get the last pick in 10 the first pick in 11 you grab at that point two closers is that a, a fairly 
standard thing for you to do in that position, or was it a reading the room situation? That, that's actually more of a Lar Michaels thing to do, but depending upon who was available, I wasn't going to fight it. <laughs> um, we had, there were three guys that we that we were hoping if it was Trevor Rosenthal, Sergio Roma, or, or Glenn Perkins had two of those three made it to us. I wasn't going to, you know, I was going to say, Lara, pick the two that you want. Um, if, if I don't, I don't want to force it there just to get a second guy, just, you know, to do the thing. You know, I, w- I wouldn't take Jim Johnson just to do it. Um, but it, it sometimes forces runs and sometimes forces more closers to be picked, which kind of helps you on your next turn. And, and, and sure enough, before, you know, Nathan and, and Jim Johnson and, and Uihara and, Robertson uh, and Soriano all went off the board before our next pick. So there's five guys that were taken that we'd have no interest in, which just pushes you know a player down to us. That's you know maybe more likely that we're gonna you know be able to take a better player at that point. So whether it caused a run or we just hit it at the right time, we caught the beginning of the run that was going to happen anyway. Who knows? You know we like to play those mind games, but uh, you know it, it's there is trading in this league. So we didn't feel as desperate to make sure we had closers, but on the other hand, it's limited trading. You're only allowed one trade with each, you're allowed to trade with every team, but only once. Right. So you, you kind of need to conserve your bullets uh, a little bit. So it was kind of in between a, a free for all trading and and no trading. So um, we kind of did want to make sure we left the the table with some with some decent saves. And finally, Todd, before I let you go, I wanted your take on something having to do with Tout Wars. They've switched a couple of years ago to on-base percentage on the offensive side in the Tout Wars Mixed League, and now this year they're going to the on-base percentage in the single league formats, National League only, American League only. You're in that National League draft. How has the on-base percentage switch affected your draft planning, if at all? As I've been doing my prep, uh, I've been sort of noting players that you know have got high OBPs at this point because I think one of the one of the differences is going to be not just you know identifying you know players in a vacuum but players that might sneak through that no one else may realize has a pretty decent OBP and you, you may be able to get a little bit of an advantage you know in the end game or, or, or something like that I think it's a pretty good move myself um, I'm not gonna you know preach on about real baseball and all these other sorts of things but, you know, if we want to sort of introduce, a, I think you have to take baby steps before you before you really hit them hard, you know, with this sort of thing. And not, not, not even talking in fantasy, I'm just talking understanding baseball in general. And if we ever want a, a sabermetric guy in the booth, it would be, you know, having people understand OBP is better than batting average is a good place to start. Um, so I'm kind of glad that uh, the Tout Wars has made the move myself. But, you know, my website, for instance, I'm providing OBP values this year. Um, you know, we one of the first just provided 15 team values, and that became popular. So, it's you know, it's not a hard thing to do. Uh, but I think it's kind of you know, I, we probably talk about more about it as we both begin our prep. You know, more towards the draft. But I think it's an interesting little wrinkle. And is there any concern do you think for Tout Wars in that you're trying to kind of lead the industry, but at the same time, if if a lot of leagues stick with tradition or for whatever reason to elect not to go with on-base percentage, does Tout Wars run the risk of becoming less relevant to the majority of people playing out there because you're now using a stat that they're not using? Yes and no. 
Um, we, we switched to 5x5 five five before the masses switched. We definitely preceded labor doing it, so we've kind of been down this road before. I'm not saying that in four years that everybody will be doing OBP. I think it was pretty apparent several years ago that the 5x5 five five sw five switch was going to keep going and, 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 go, and go on. Um, I, can, I, I think it's, it's an interesting move. No, I, I, I don't think it's going to hurt it because... I don't necessarily. I don't think that you need the, the values are, are what is good about or why you should be following Tout Wars. I think you should be looking more upon the, the the different team constructions and the and the dynamics and and how people go about using their fab and and, and the trades and, and how they manage their roster as opposed to how much do you think that you know Norichigaoki is going to go for in an in an AL only draft. Uh, I think that that's a little short-sighted because it's going to be different in every draft, whether it's OBP or batting average or, or what. Uh, maybe it's a way, if, if Tower Wars does a good job of explaining that, then maybe we could even do a better job of explaining how a person can go about using Tower Wars and labor in their own prep beyond just having a general feel for when players may be you know, bid upon. Well said, Todd. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Patrick. And we'll catch up with you again next week. That's Todd Zola, who writes for BaseballHQ.com and ESPN.com and MastersBall.com, the hardest working man in show business. When we come back, our feature interview with minor league expert Rob Gordon from BaseballHQ.com. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just training board at every pitch. Here it comes a swing of it. that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no-hitter of perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here, and it's a pleasure now to be joined by a frequent guest here at Baseball HQ Radio, our regular minor league minute commentator, here today to talk about some bigger issues. Rob Gordon. Rob, welcome back to the show. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me on the show again. Oh, it's our pleasure. This is always one of my favorite segments and a favorite segment of our listeners as well. We want to talk, first of all, Rob, especially about the uh, Baseball HQ, HQ100, the top 100 prospects, and uh, a few changes this year. Starting with, you have a lot more guys participating. There's, I think you used to have just you and Jeremy Deloney. Now there's five of you. How do you put those lists together? Well, you know, part of the process is just over, you know, over the course of the year watching, watching all the games and uh, getting detailed scouting reports on the players. And then when, when we're in the process of working on the um, minor league baseball analyst, that's when it really starts to come together. Um, and then that's one of the sort of, after we've done most of the scouting reports, that's one of the last things we, we then do is really start to put together our top 100 list after we've really kind of assessed the players and weighed them against all the other players out there. So what we do is each of us comes up with a top 100 list independent of, of the other four, um, and then we submit those lists, and Jeremy actually then merges that into, into one list. Um, and the way that he does that is we, he, he ranks the player's value. So the, the person at the, at the top of the list, whoever, whoever, if I've ranked Byron Buxton number one, then he gets 100 points, and then he just kind of collates the whole list together and averages out uh, 
the players, and that's how we come up with the, the top 100 list. I'm wondering if you have any special mechanisms to address issues like you have a guy, number six, and one of the other guys on the list has him at number 91, and it's all over the lot. It seems like averaging might not be the best way to approach it. I'm wondering, how do you, how do you settle issues where there's huge divergence of opinion? Well, I think, you know, we, we, we do go back and forth a little bit, and so if there's an outlier, Brent Hershey, the, you know, the editor of the, um, of the minor league baseball analyst, will, will send some emails back and forth so that we can kind of, uh, you know, average some of those differences out. But, um, but really, I think, you know, that we do a follow-up column that's coming out this weekend where we, we talk about some of those differences, and so instead of trying to, you know, merge everybody towards the norm, I think, you know, in some ways we really do want to have those outliers, and so... Um, you know, because it makes for a good conversation. So why would Jeremy have somebody at number six and I would have the player at number 91? Uh, we, we tend to, we, at this point, we do tend to just average the players, but then talk about that during the follow-up conversation about how, you know, why is that? What is it that, that I liked about the player or didn't like about the player so that we can get, you know, greater context for, for why the, the differences are there? Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways it, it is the outliers who are the most interesting because they force you to consider your methods and to look to look a second time. If everybody says, yeah, he's around number 20, then that doesn't really create any cause for conversation or for further analysis. Let me ask you, Rob, which player were you most out of sync with as far as the other guys are concerned? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, probably the player I was the most out of sync was Miguel Gonzalez, the, you know, the Cuban defector that the, the Phillies signed. And I think um, I think probably the one another player that we were out of sync was Jose Abreu with the White Sox. It's it's really hard to get a read on some of those uh, Cuban players. I mean, Gonzalez hasn't pitched really competitively since 2011, and so you know the last time anybody saw him pitch was was three years ago. Um, it's it's really hard to get a read on somebody like that, and and so you're mostly relying on old video and, and old scouting reports, and so. Trying to get a, a handle on a player like that, I, I, it's interesting because I, I included Miguel Gonzalez, uh, Gonzalez on the list, but I didn't put a Brayu on the list because I, I just didn't feel like I had enough information on him. Um, so I think I had Gonzalez at number fifty-six, but he didn't, you know, on my top, on my own top one hundred list, but he didn't make the overall top one hundred list. And I think the reason was some of the, you know, some of the other uh, writers just didn't include him because I don't think they had enough information on him. So somebody like that is really hard to, to assess, and you get a wide range of differences, you know, until he really gets here and starts playing, you're not going to have a very good idea of what, what you have with him. Yeah, I thought the same thing about the Cuban guys. At least the Japanese players, we have a kind of a track record to translate some of their performances in the Japanese professional level with what they might do. And I think, isn't the general consensus that a Japanese player should be regarded as kind of a 4A type of league? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's it, the, the play there is probably equivalent to you know, I guess some sort of combination of double A AA and triple A, where you have some of the better players at double A. You know, because sometimes they're 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 journeyman players at triple A. So I hate to say it's equivalent to triple A or four A, but you know, but uh, there's some pretty good players. But the problem is, you know, you think take somebody like uh, Tanaka who, who's coming over, and you know, he faces some good hitters, but he down at the end of the lineup, he doesn't. You, you get more breaks at the end of a, a Japanese lineup than you would in a, in a major league lineup. But it's definitely better than, than and more consistent than the play you'd get in Cuba or any of the other international teams. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt talking with Rob Gordon, minor league expert from BaseballHQ.com. And Rob, we're talking about the Baseball HQ Top 100 Prospects list. It just came out in the last uh, week or so. Who moved up the list the most from the 2013? Well, you know, it's always, it's always hard to, 
to do that. But, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the guys that I think was really impressive and, and maybe was a little bit lower ranked last year than, than he should have been was, um, was a guy, Gregory Polanco, from, uh, from the Pirates. He, he was 68 on the list last year, and he moved all the way up to number 10 on the list this year. Um, I was actually pretty optimistic about Polanco last year and, and thought maybe he should have been a bit higher than he, than he ended up on the composite list. But he really, you know, I think, you know, it's understandable. The guy, guy had a couple of years where he, was, he started very slowly as a professional and he had two years where he really didn't do that much and then kind of exploded in, in 2012. Um, you know, and so how do, you, how do you assess that? Is that really a legitimate breakout or is that just a really solid year and maybe, maybe he's going to come back to earth a little bit? And he did come back to earth a little bit. He hit 285 rather than, you know, over 300. And he only had 12 home runs, but he still stole 36 bases and he played at, at high A, double A, and triple A last year. So, so obviously the Pirates are really enthusiastic about his production. Otherwise, they wouldn't have moved him up quite so quickly. Um, and another guy who I, who I think really is in kind of the same mold and trying to make sense of where does this guy fit and what is his, what is his profile really going to be like is, uh, is Michael Franco of the, of the Phillies, um, who was a third baseman. And last year he was unranked uh, on the top 100 this list, and this year he came in at 34. Uh, he has some really nice potential. He had 320 this year with 30 home runs between high A and double A. But there are some scouts that aren't convinced about either about his defense or about his swing. He kind of has a groove swing, um, which scouts worry about a little bit in terms of, like, how, you know, our pitcher is going to be able to exploit that. But he's, he's got a quick bat, and so, so far he's been able to make up for that. Um, but those are, two, those are two hitters that really jumped out at me. Um, on the pitching side, Jordano Ventura um, from, the, from the Royals uh, went from 99 on the list last year to number 21 on the list this year. Uh, really has some good potential. Had a 3.14 ERA this year and struck out 155 in 132 innings. So I always like to see that that good dominance, you know, strikeout per nine ratio. Um, you know, 155 strikeouts in 134 innings with pretty good walk ratio. That's really impressive. And the last guy that really jumped out at me is, is Eddie Butler. Again, went from unranked um, last year and then all the way up to number 36 on the on the list this year. Had a 1.80 ERA this year with 143 strikeouts. And 13 of those starts came in the hitter-friendly Cali, which, you know, for a young, a young pitcher to, to have 13 good starts with a sub-2 ERA in the Cali is really impressive. On the flip side, there's always players who start the year in 2013 relatively highly situated on the list, and they play poorly or um, terribly and either fall down the list or off it altogether. Uh, who caught your eye this year that wasn't on the list or was way down it? Yeah, that's always tough. You know, it's always tough to sort of assess, what, you know, what went wrong with a player. Um, you know, in the case of somebody like Danny Hulton of Seattle, he was number twenty and one on the or twenty on the list last year and dropped all the way to seventy six on the on the list this year. But most of that was because he was hurt. He had a shoulder injury and missed almost all of two thousand and thirteen. And you know, they were going to rehab it and see if he got better, and he ultimately didn't. And he had to have the labrum surgery in October, and now he's going to miss all of two thousand and fourteen. So it's not that necessarily he performed badly. He just was hurt. And, you know, with a the, with the shoulder injury like that, it's, you know, it's much more risky than, say, Tommy John surgery. So really kind of have to hedge our bets a little bit on somebody like Danny Hulton because we won't know what he's going to be like until he gets back. So in some cases it's an injury, and that, that really causes players to, to drop down the list. You know, somebody like Dylan Bundy, same thing. You know, we have to wait and see what he's got when he comes back. Um, in other cases, it's a guy like Trevor Bauer who just really looked horrible last year and trying to figure out, why? What happened there? Um, you know, with Bauer, he just completely lost control. He couldn't, he couldn't find the strike zone. Um, and I think, you know, he'd always tinkered with his mechanics a little bit, and I think maybe that got away from him a little bit. Um, 
And the latest word is that he's going to go back and, and kind of retool his delivery and maybe have it, try to go back to the delivery he had when he was at UCLA. So we'll have to see what happens there. But he really, he really dropped. He was at number seven on the list last year and dropped all the way down to number 58. And that was mostly because of poor performance. Um, on the hitter side, you know, somebody like Mike Holt from the, from the Cubs, who was on the Rangers last year, was number 25 on the list, and now it's completely off the list. Um, and, again, it was a combination of, in his case, it was a combination of an injury and then just really bad performance. So he had a concussion last year in winter ball, and it resulted in some lingering vision problems throughout the year. Um, and, of course, he came over in that Matt Garza trade, and, and, you know, the Cubs are really excited to get him, hoping they, you know, he could turn things around. But at the, at the end of the day, on the year, he hit 201 and struck out 132 times in just 373 at-bats. So the Cubs are really hoping that he'll rebound when he comes to spring training this year. But I, th- I think there's definitely a lot of red flags with somebody like Mike Old, and I think we'll just have to wait and see. Can he regain his form where he hit, you know, close to 300 with almost 30 home runs a couple of years ago? Or is, is he just lost it now? So I think we'll have to wait and see on that. Rob, you mentioned uh, when you were talking about uh, Gregor Polanco, the Pirates prospect, that uh, one of the things that you like about him is that he started off in the relatively low minors and through the year climbed all the way to AAA. That's a very positive sign for any player, isn't it? But how much does it depend on him succeeding as he goes up those levels rather than just going up those levels to suit organizational needs? Well, right, that, and it's it's always kind of tricky to assess that. Some some organizations, you know, if they, um, you know, I'm thinking of like the the Tigers. Sometimes they'll promote players because they have to. <laughs> um, and I think maybe in Nick Castellanos' case, that's that's kind of what's going on there. They they don't have anyone else to turn to, and they need a third baseman now. Um, you know, and so sometimes players get moved up whether they're ready for it or not. Uh, I think you know, looking at the situation, and so the Pirates don't really need Polanco at this point. So the fact that they're they're promoting him aggressively, um, I think is a, is a huge positive because they don't have to do it, but they feel like he's ready for it. So you really do, I think, have to look at the context of the player in, in the context of the organization. But I think when you see an organization that clearly has no need to rush a player, in fact, has maybe a reason to slow the player down a little bit, and yet they're still promoting him, you know, especially three jumps. Three, for me, three jumps in one year is really impressive to go from you know from either high A or low A all the way up to triple A when there isn't a pressing need for that. That to me tells says that the organization is really confident that the player can handle the the progression. And certainly wants to see how well he's going to handle the progression in order to judge how quickly he can make the major leagues. Which brings me to this point. Uh, which players on the list do you think are the likeliest to help a fantasy team this year? Well, I think the one that's going to be the most interesting to watch is going to be Billy Hamilton. Um, certainly, he's got the most fantasy potential of any prospect this year. Um, and, you know, he looked very good in the, the brief stint he, he played last year. I mean, I think he stole 13 bases in 14 attempts. But he only got 19 at-bats. And so my concern with somebody like Hamilton, especially on draft day, is what kind of production are you going to get out of him? If he plays, I mean, if he can somehow get 500 at-bats, He's going, to, he's going to lead the league in stolen bases. I don't have any doubt about that. Even if he doesn't hit, I think he'll still get on base enough, and he's, he's proficient enough as a base dealer that he could lead the, the National League, if not the majors, in stolen bases. He's that fast. But long-term, I think, you know, it's, it's a, there's still some question marks. I mean, I think, you know, his ability to be able to, to hit, he certainly has no power. So his ability to hit is very much in question and he's been converted to center field where he's very fast because of his you know, speed, so he can cover a lot of ground. But he's, he's kind of raw in terms of his 
taking routes and all those other things. So I think it's going to be just fascinating to watch Billy Hamilton this spring and to see what happens there. But certainly he's got the, the highest upside of any, uh, any prospect going into 2014. And certainly there's some other, you know, a lot of the rest of the players come down to playing time. So somebody like Xander Bogart is from Boston. It looks like right now he's going to be the Red Sox starting, starting shortstop. Obviously huge potential there. He, he, I don't know if anyone saw him in the playoffs last year, but he looked amazingly mature and patient at the plate for such a young player in such a pressure situation. So I'm really very optimistic that he's going to, he's going to have a nice transition there. Um, Nick Castellanos for the, for the Tigers, is an, and we mentioned before, is another guy who's going to get a lot of opportunities. I'm not totally convinced he's really ready to, to hit in the majors. I think long-term I like his bat. I think he'll have a little bit more power than he's shown so far. But he looked overmatched to me last year when I saw him play. And, I, you know, that's going to be a lot of pressure to move into that lineup and, and play third base every day there. And then, obviously, you know, the, the imports, Jose Abreu, uh, Tanaka, um, who's just signed with the Yankees, and Miguel Gonzalez. Those guys are all going to have uh, significant value, you know, because the, the team's invested a, a significant amount of money, so obviously they're going to be in the, in the lineups on a regular basis. Tanaka will be fascinating to watch. I think, you know, it seems like whoever the preceding you know, import was from Japan, that's how people set the bar. And so Yu Darvish was kind of the last big import and did very well, obviously. And so now I think people are expecting that Tanaka is going to be able to sort of duplicate some of those results, but I don't think he's, I don't think he's the same pitcher. I like him a lot as a number three or number four starter, but I think if teams think, you know, if the fantasy owners go in there thinking he's going to be the next U Darvish, I think they might be disappointed there. I absolutely agree with you. I don't think he's close to U Darvish. Uh, in fact, uh, I think you could make a pretty good argument that the Yankees probably should have gone with Matt Garza, saved themselves $10 bucks a year plus the posting fee and all of that kind of stuff because uh, Matt Garza's proved himself. He's a, he's a good pitcher, you know. Yeah, I, that, I mean, for the given the price differentials there, I mean, that's a pretty big risk to invest that much money. I think you know, it's a twenty million dollar posting fee and a hundred fifty five million dollar contract. You know, if you get if you get the next Matt Suzaka rather than the next Yu Darvish, you know, that's a that's a pretty big gamble. I think. I mean, I like I, I do like Tanaka. I just I just think he hasn't proven it yet. Um, and he's he's young and he's got good stuff, but right. I, I'm a little worried about his mechanics. He looks like a little bit kind of on the max effort side in terms of his delivery. And I don't like how he drops his arm on the front side, but he's shown really good control in, in, in Japan. So I guess going forward, that, that bodes well. But, again, I think it's a big risk. Yeah, and you mentioned could he be, he's not going to be Darvish. Could he be Matsuzaka? Hey, remember Hideki Rabu, uh, uh, a Japanese pitching disaster in New York. And, of course, I don't think anybody suspects that's going to be the case, but they never do. You know, the, a guy comes over and uh, – uh, I've seen some discussion that that makes a a, a pretty good point. Uh, Harold Nichols raised this a little earlier as well, and that is when you're pitching in Japan, the the back end. No, never mind. I'm just going to stop here. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Rob Gordon, minor league expert from BaseballHQ.com. Rob, we've been talking about the HQ uh, Top 100 Prospects list. How do you think subscribers in general should use the list for planning their fantasy rosters and their reserve lists and so on? Yeah, well, I think it's a good shorthand. I mean, obviously, I would definitely refer to that. I mean, it's there. It's a fun exercise. It is somewhat useful to see, you know, where a player ranks on that list. But I think the, the danger is in, in reading too much into a list. And so it really is a, a, a ballpark. It's very difficult to put together because trying to figure out if a guy is number 24 or is he number 26 is really splitting hairs. And in my mind, the, it really goes in stages. So 1 through 25, well, maybe 1 through 10. 
those players are in one group. And then maybe 10 through 25, those players are in another group. And then 25 through 50, and then 50 to 100. Um, and even, you know, if you extend it further, the difference between, say, 75 and, and 125 on a list is, is pretty subjective. Um, you know, and a lot of times the reason players are lower on those lists are either the, the upside is just not there or the player is really young and, and either just got drafted or is in the very low minors. And so, especially with pitchers, it's hard to, it's hard to get a, a really confident um, assessment of a player that young who's just out of high school. So I think those of you, you see a lot of your 9Ds or even 9Es that when we give them a ranking, they end up in that range there. So I think, I think the temptation is to see that, as, well, this guy's at number 75 on the list, so obviously he's, he's better than the guy who's number 85 on the list, so I'm going to draft him over this other guy. I think there's a little bit of a risk there, and I think really going to the scouting reports, the more detailed scouting reports that we have in each of the, you know, from each of the organizations, because in that, in those scouting reports, we put a fantasy analysis in there. So what's the what's the player's likely fantasy impact? And so there's just a lot more information to glean from the organizational reports that a, that a list of you know a composite list of 100 players can't really give you that context to look at. If a fantasy owner had to choose on the list, so you, you make a good point that really 75 and 81 are not essentially. Uh, really that different so if I'm looking at the 75 guy and I'm looking at the 81 guy and they're both third baseman and they both seem pretty equal to me I wonder about the organizations Rob do you think an owner is better off a fantasy owner because he wants to get a guy who's going to help him in the big leagues is that owner going to be better off choosing a guy who plays for a bad team because he's got a faster path to the majors theoretically at least or a, or for a good smart team because they're going to develop him better and make better choices about when he comes to the majors it's tricky because I think obviously the the bad team is more likely to promote a player quicker, um, and so they, they you know they have think about somebody like Houston they're gonna they're gonna have they have a lot of you know really good highly ranked prospects at this point and there's nothing much holding them back at the major league level, so they're gonna get promoted sooner they're gonna they're gonna contribute to your fantasy team sooner they're gonna you know accrue more stats over the time that you own them, but they might be bad stats because they're, the player's not ready. So my take, my preference personally would be to, to pick an organization um, like the Cardinals, for example, who maybe there's not a, a clear opening for somebody like Oscar Taveras right now or somebody like Carlos Martinez who's going to have to pitch out of the bullpen until there's a spot in the starting rotation. I, I would take my chances with those guys because the Cardinals have proven that they know when the players are ready and will put them in situations where they can succeed. And it really doesn't do you any good to, to have a, especially in most formats, to have a, a player come up when they're not ready right. and to be in over their head and to learn on the job like the Tigers did with Jeremy Bondman back in the day, you know, and have him lose 19 games and have a, have a bad ERA. Right? That's not going to really do you any good. So I would personally prefer, even though you're going to get more stats from the guy in the bad team, I'd personally prefer to take a player where the, with, I know the organization is going to fit him in when they're ready and give them opportunities when they're, that they're able to handle. Yeah, I was thinking the same way that, that uh, especially in leagues where minor league players come up with advantage salaries, if you're playing in a salary format, and then every year he's up and killing you with stats, he's also killing a year off his long-term capability for you. I'd rather have a guy come up when he's ready and and get you know three or four really solid years out of him than get it, get those bad stats early and have him kill all of his uh, you know five dollar years. Uh, you, you mentioned the St. Louis Cardinals as a smart team. Who are some of the other ones? 
Well, certainly Tampa. I think they've they've you know proven track record. Uh, the Atlanta Braves have done have done a consistently good job. Uh, the Red Sox, you know, uh, I mean, anytime you look at the list, I think the Red Sox have seven or eight players in the top 100 list, and and obviously, you know, we're, we're in the World Series, so anytime you see something like that, the Cardinals also usually have a, a lot of players on the top 100 list, and so sometimes they're a little bit further down the list because they they draft a little bit later, but anytime you have a team that's able to to consistently make it to the playoffs and yet still have a strong minor league organization, to me, that's a sign of success. And, you know, the Pirates have really turned things around substantially. Not only have they had success now at the major league level, but their minor league system continues to be stacked with really good players. So those are the teams that really that really stand out to me. One team that has a pretty good reputation as a, as a good, smart organization is the Oakland Athletics, but they only have one guy on the list. Is that because they've had poor draft picks by virtue of succeeding on the field at the major league level, so they pick down the list, or... Uh, just dumb luck, or what's going on with the Oakland A's? Why are they not more heavily represented? Yeah, well, I think I think with Oakland's case, I mean, some some of it's to do with the fact. I mean, I don't know what the average age of their starting rotation is, but it's pretty young. And so, in some cases, they've the players are just they're playing in the major leagues, and so they've depleted their minor league system because they because they brought them up already. Um, and then they have to restock the system. And so, Oakland seems to have Tampa kind of does this too. Oakland has a, a system where they. They bring the players up, you know, and then they, they kind of sell off when they, when they feel like they need to and then retool down with the minor league system. So Oakland succeeds, I think, in, in part because of the, the savvy trades they make more than the fact that they're investing heavily in the, in the draft. And so a lot of times the players that the Oakland drafts are not, you know, are, are not sort of your bonus baby, top-flight elite prospects, in part because they're usually not drafting at the, in the top, you know, five or ten picks. But also, just philosophically, they don't want to spend a lot of money on on draft picks. That's still the case. But they, they, I think, have a do a very good job of of when they are retooling, identifying players that are going to help them and come in, in in a very short term, you know, period of time. So they kind of fluctuate. They they'll go a couple of years where they have a really good organization, and they bring everybody up, and then they have to kind of retool. So I think that's more of the case where they're at right now, rather than than having you know bad luck on the on, on draft day or or anything like that. I don't think the organization's in trouble. I just think they're in a you know a cycle where they brought a lot of those players up now. In that uh, way, you could say they're a victim of their own success. I guess uh, they've done well, and that's going to happen if you draft really well and you get a lot of good young talent into the major leagues quickly. That's going to deplete everybody else down the road. The the Houston Astros you mentioned, uh, perhaps not the uh, premium organization in baseball. They have uh, a couple of guys. Near the top of the list, uh, number nine, Carlos Correa, shortstop, and number 15, George Springer, a, a really promising outfielder. When you look at two guys like this, their chances of being rushed into Major League Baseball are pretty good because, face it, that team needs all the help it can get. How likely are they to get there quickly, and how likely are they to succeed once they get there? Well, I think the, I think they are going to get there quickly. I think I think that you know the organization, as you said, has has you know lots of reasons to promote them. Uh, aggressively and quickly, I think I worry about that. Though I think you know, especially with somebody like Korea's uh, case, I think you know he's he's a premium player. I really like him. I think he has the potential to be a, a regular All Star. But I think if they rush him, um, you really run in significant risk there. Um, you know, so I and I think I think the organization. I mean, they've made a lot of progress in terms of what they've of, of how they've been drafting recently. Um, the commitment to building a minor league organization, but. When you're in a situation like that where they're not, there isn't talent at the major league level to slow some of these players down until they're really ready, you know, there's, there's a, a, ch- a chance that they're going to let them learn on the job. And I, I'm never a big fan of that. Sometimes it works out, but 
often than not, it seems like it, it, it's problematic, especially if you're, you know, if you're looking at it from a fantasy perspective where you're trying to win this year. You're not really, you're not like the Houston Astros waiting, willing to wait, you know, three years down, or the Cubs, you know, willing to wait for three years down the road. You, you want a player to have an impact now. Um, and so I worry that, the, that they're going to get rushed and that they, that they won't be ready. In somewhat of a similar situation, the Minnesota Twins have struggled the last few years to put a winning team on the field at the major league level. They only have two guys on the prospects list, which is a little alarming, I guess, for fans there. But if you, ha- if you can only have two guys, not a bad two guys to have. The top prospect overall is outfielder Byron Buxton. And they also have the number five guy, uh, third base-ish prospect called Miguel Sano. These are uh, two premium prospects. They also have Osvaldo Arcia in the major leagues already. What do you think of uh, especially uh, Buxton and Sano as far as timeline and likelihood of success? Buxton is just, I'd just be shocked if he doesn't succeed in the majors. He just does everything so effortlessly. Um, he's, he's fast. He's, he's showing good power. He's very patient at the plate. He has a really good idea of what he's doing offensively. He, there's really nothing he can't do on a baseball field. Um, I think, you know, he's the kind of guy that could probably figure it out pretty quickly. So there's so much talent there that whenever they, whenever the Twins feel like he's ready, he's going he's gonna to come up and make an impact. So that was interesting because he's third, third base right now, but I think there's some questions about whether he's going to be able to stick there or not. And, um, you know, he's gotten crazy, but maybe have some of the best raw power of anybody in the minors. But he, he does have a lot of swing and miss in his approach at the plate, can be overly aggressive. And I think we'll need, maybe need a little bit more time, a little bit more seasoning. But he, I think he finished the year at Double A. So again, both of those guys are on the verge of, of reaching the majors, possibly as, as soon as this year. You know, Sano is, is a little nicked up, and there was questions about whether he's going to need um, need surgery on his. Uh, I think it's the shoulder. Um, but it looks like for now they, they they're they're not going to have surgery, and they're talking about him. You know, maybe even winning the starting job out of, out of spring training. Um, I think I you know personally I'd rather have guys like that, like Sano and Buxton. And just have if I have two guys on the list and they're two impact players like that, I don't care. I mean, you know, think about the, the Tigers again. To, you know, to go back to them a couple of years ago, they had Justin Verlander. Yeah. And you know, and not really much of anything else. But so what? <laughs> you know, that's all you need. You know, if you have one impact player like that every every couple of years, um, you can you can get by without having a really deep or really strong system as long as the players you have at the top of the system are really good. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Rob Gordon, minor league analyst from BaseballHQ.com. And Rob, before we let you go, uh, I, was, I ask you this every year, I know, but I think it's good information to remind our listeners of. Give us the breakdown of the rough ages for each level of the minors that tell us if a player is ahead of schedule, behind schedule, or right on schedule as far as his development path towards the big leagues. Yeah, sure. Well, low A probably, you know, you're looking at... Um 18 to 20 really kind of depends. I mean, obviously, you know, college draft picks usually, uh, you know, even if like Mark Appel, somebody really good like that is going to get some time at, at low A. So that might throw off the – I wouldn't worry too much about that if you see a 21-year-old college player who just got drafted and he's at low A. That's, that's not really a concern. They're probably going to move him up pretty aggressively. Um, so really 18 to, to 20, if it's a high school, high school kid and, and he's – Anywhere between 18 and 20, and he's doing well at low A. That's that's pretty good. If you're if you're over 20 and still at low A, that that's not a great sign. Um, high A, probably you know 19 to 21 is, is sort of the the typical age of your elite prospects. You could still be 21 at high A and still be a pretty good prospect. Uh, I think once you get to once you get to 22, then like 20 to 22 would be a good time uh, time frame for double A, and then 22 to 24. 
at AAA. AAA is a little bit harder just because sometimes guys like Will Myers might get might get stuck there because there's not an opening or a team's waiting for the, the player to get a certain number of uh, repetitions or something like that. So AAA is a little bit a little bit trickier. I mean, you might have a 21 year old there, you might have a 25 year old there that that's really ready to go that's just waiting for an opening. Um, so tr- like I said, AAA is a little bit trickier to read, but in general, those are the breakdowns that I would that I would look at. And if the guy's older than that, and let's say he's 23 and he's still at high A, even if he had a really good year, I'd, I would tend to discount that pretty heavily. Yeah, I think the 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 way to look at those thresholds is if a guy's over the age that he should be, that's a warning sign. And if he's well under the age, that's a real positive sign. You know, if you yeah. see a 19-year-old guy succeeding at double-A uh, AA or triple-A, that's a guy you really want to have your eye on at that point. And everybody does. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I think it's it's easy to overlook that because we tend to look at the statistics and say, well, you know, the guy only hit 260 with 10 home runs, at, you know, but he's, he's a 19-year-old at double-A. And so he's playing against players that are maybe, you know, two, three years older than he is. So at some point you, you want to see a player – you know, dominate on the field, but sometimes you really do have to look at the context. And if the player is exceptionally young for that level, then then we wouldn't expect nearly as uh, as robust a stats from that, from that player. And in AAA, in a lot of instances, he's going to be playing against fringe minor leaguers. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, fringe major leaguers. You know, he's going to be up there against guys who who are the like the 26th best player on a major league roster. And uh, and and of course, on the other side of the coin, you may have a, an older guy at AAA, and you think, why isn't he getting out of there? You mentioned that he may be blocked by positional issues at the major league level, and a lot of organizations, of course, delay a guy just to for service clock reasons. They want to delay his his promotion so they get extra year of uh, before arbitration before free agency. Yeah, absolutely. So I really do think you have to look at it in context, but I but I agree that that if a player is uh, you know doing well. Uh, and is young for the for the that level, then that's really something to to keep an eye on, um, you know. And I think it's a real thumb, and you really have to look at it in in, in in context too with the organization that you're looking at. And finally, uh, it's great fun talking about the prospects here at Baseball HQ Radio, and of course on the site every week, you guys have a lot of prospect content. And as well, there's listeners. That's not enough. Uh, you also have the Minor League Analyst, your annual book. Uh, that's just come out. Give us the details. Uh, yeah, just come. I think it's just getting ready to ship now. Um, you can get it on the website, 1995, uh, plus shipping and handling. Uh, if you do that, you also get some some nice updates. I think we covered over a thousand players on, in the book this year. Um, our, our, really, our, I think our best effort uh, yet so far on, on doing the book. We really spent a lot of time. There's some good articles at the beginning of the book, um, looking at international players, looking at some prospects outside of the top 100. That might surprise people, um, and then really, you know, a detailed scouting report on each of the player, along with the last five years of their stats, whether it be in college, or uh, you know, in, in the minor leagues, or even in international players, looking at their at their statistics. Um, you know, so the same sort of metrics that we used for the for the baseball forecaster on and on the regular site. Um, we, you know, just really, I think that's really a useful tool to be able to look at that and say, what's the, you know, what's, how, what, where does plate discipline, especially for a young hitter, where does plate discipline come in here? And trying to identify prospects that have that, plus the, the raw tools. So it's not just looking at the stats, it's combining that with a scouting report. Um, we also will do some updates throughout the, throughout the year, so you get a PDF of the book, um, which is very useful for drafting kinds of purposes. And then we do an updated top 30 list in March every year and then an updated top 50 fantasy prospects also in March, so people will get that uh, emailed out to them. Wow, that sounds great. And then, uh, of course, uh, you'll be back during the year here at Baseball HQ Radio to talk prospects uh, 
in a feature forum, but also uh, you'll be back again this year doing the regular weekly minor league minute. And I understand maybe some of your colleagues will be joining us. Yeah, we'll try to get some. We'll try to get Jeremy and some of the other guys on every once in a while. But uh, yeah, they'll be back doing the minor league minute each week. It's a really fun thing because it's it's an opportunity to to highlight each week, uh, you know, a player or prospect who maybe has has gotten off to a good start or conversely is struggling. And you know to kind of give a, a week by week update on on some of the some of the top prospects in baseball and the the, the podcast is just fantastic, Patrick, and I'm I'm so happy to be a part of it. Well, right back at you, Rob. It's great to have you as a part of it. Uh, we'll talk to you again during the year, and of course, as I mentioned, the minor league uh, minute every week starting I think in the first podcast in February. Rob, thanks very much for joining us here. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Patrick. Rob Gordon is a minor leagues analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our Minor League Minute commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com speculator columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy talking about reading the tea leaves. Jackie Bradley versus Oscar Taveras. In our recently released HQ100 prospect list, St. Louis outfielder Oscar Taveras ranks number two, and Boston outfielder Jackie Bradley ranks number 38. Both are advanced prospects that are ready or nearly ready for the majors. Bradley actually made his MLB debut in 2013, and Tavares might have as well if not for injury issues. Based on these facts, you would assume that Tavares is the better selection in fantasy leagues for 2014, right? Maybe not. Why not? The answer lies in their team context. By interpreting the actions of these two savvy organizations this offseason, we can draw some conclusions about each prospect's outlook for 2014, conclusions that might change your initial rankings of each of them. First, St. Louis. Tavares battled some injury issues that caused him to miss the end of the 2013 season and have continued to hamper him this offseason. He may or may not be healthy enough for opening day. Regardless, the injury situation probably would have forced him to the minors in April, at least to get some regular at-bats and work off some rust in the time missed last year. Still, the Cardinals aren't doing anything to hold a spot for him. Carlos Beltran departed as a free agent, but that opening was filled from within, via Alan Craig moving to the outfield and Matt Adams taking over at first base. Additionally, the acquisition of Peter Borjos puts four quality outfielders on the roster ahead of Tavares. Once Tavares goes to the minors and establishes his health and readiness for a call-up, it's hard to see how the Cardinals can work him into the lineup. Neither Craig nor Holiday is going to sit too often, and since Tavares is left-handed, there's no natural platoon to be created with Matt Adams via Craig swinging back to first base. Tavares remains an excellent prospect, and in some sense what we're seeing is that he might just be a short-term victim of the Cardinals' deep roster and system. He's worthy of that number two overall prospect ranking, but his path to contributing in 2014 is cloudy. Contrast that with Bradley's situation in Boston. The Red Sox also lost an outfielder in free agency, Jacoby Ellsbury, to the Yankees. Boston was rumored to be interested in Beltran, and then later in the winter were linked to lesser free agent outfielders, like Franklin Gutierrez. As a Red Sox fan and close observer of the team, I'd been waiting all winter to see what sort of backup outfielder they would bring in as an insurance policy against the possibility of Bradley struggling in his transition to the majors. This week I got my answer when the Sox signed Grady Sizemore to a guaranteed contract, along with Bradley, Shane Victorino, Daniel Nava, and Johnny Gomes, Sizemore now slots in as the fifth outfielder. Yes, we're talking about that Grady Sizemore, the one who didn't play at all in 2012 or 2013 and hasn't returned a positive verto value since 2009. As if that's not enough reason to doubt him, there are three other factors that make him a curious signing for the Red Sox. One, he comes with significant questions about his health and durability. Two, 
Even when healthy, he wasn't a particularly good defensive outfielder to begin with. And three, as a left-handed hitter, he doesn't even make an effective platoon partner for the also left-handed Bradley. The Red Sox could have signed a replacement-level outfielder, someone who is a good center field defender and bats right-handed, as a more suitable alternative to Bradley. A Reed Johnson type, for instance. There's no upside there, but a guy who has some specific utility as a 25th man. Instead, they took a shot at Sizemore, a guy with a much higher ceiling, and at least as much chance of providing nothing at all. That leads me to the conclusion that Boston isn't worried about that second outcome. If Sizemore is on the DL by April 15th, that's going to mean they're heavily committed to Bradley. Sure, they can swing Victorino back to center field and play both Nava and Gomes in the corners, but that's a dubious defensive alignment for a team that puts a lot of emphasis on defense. Basically, by taking the flyer on Sizemore and assuming the downside risk that comes with him, the Red Sox are saying quite firmly, we believe in Jackie Bradley. They don't feel like they need a replacement-level insurance policy for him. Based on this admittedly speculative reading of the tea leaves, in redraft leagues, I'm moving Bradley up my lists and Tavares down. Team context matters, especially when we're talking about organizations that have demonstrated they know what they're doing. After all, these are last year's World Series teams we're talking about here. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy is a member of the Masternotes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for January 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our feature guest today, Rob Gordon, minor league analyst at BaseballHQ.com, who came in to talk about the new HQ100 Top Prospects list, which is available at BaseballHQ.com right now. I also want to thank our regular commentators. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, our regular Friday correspondent was Todd Zola, and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com co-GM and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes to add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>